Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you who have called Avalon Church home for more than a couple of years, Ward Hodges is our favorite son. In fact, there's no one I'd rather listen to preach the message of the cross besides Ward's is Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Dr. Jones will not be here today. To those Johnny-come-latelys, it's my honor to introduce Ward. He was born, raised, and educated here in the state of Florida. And since Major League Baseball did not have a team here, his eyes went west to L.A., and the Dodgers became the love of his life, along with the Lord and eventually his wife, Amy, who, along with my wife, Carmen, is a love-unveiled butterfly filled with beauty and strength. Together, they have two children, Ethan and Juliet. Since 2000, Ward has been the executive director of World Hope. In 2014, he became the pastor at Lighthouse Baptist Church in Sanford. But he remains the distinguished visiting fellow of men's ministry here at Avalon Church, as well as emeritus lecturer at the Thomas Denton Chair of Biblical Studies. Welcome home, Ward. Please give him a warm welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Those were big words. Um, I don't know how to follow that. So we'll just get going, okay? Uh, we're about five or six weeks into the new year or so. How's your New Year's resolutions coming? I never thought I'd be the kind of person who uh, would wake up early in the morning to exercise, and I was right. Uh, it's my intent this morning to, to tell you the story of the book of Nehemiah in the short time that we have uh, together. If you have your Bibles, please, you can open to Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, the year is 586 B.C. Try to set the scene for you here a little bit. Jerusalem uh, is uh, laid under siege by the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar. They've been under siege for quite some time, and eventually now in 586, the Babylonians come in and they raise the city to the ground, including the temple that Solomon built some four centuries earlier. And uh, they carry away into captivity all the wealthy and the educated. If you're a poor farmer, they let you stay and work the land so that you can fill the tax coffers of Babylon. But if you have any standing whatsoever, you get carried away into captivity. Uh, among those carried away in the first wave is a very young teenager by the name of Daniel. And Daniel would grow up and, um, as an old man, would become friends with the pride of lions. And uh, you can read all about that story in the book aptly named after him, Daniel. There were also three other young teenagers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were their brand new names, and you'll remember that story, how when the king built an idol for them to bow down and worship, and they refused to do that, the king invited them to a barbecue as the barbecue. 
Uh, and all of that is found in the book of Daniel as well. <clears throat> uh, the Babylonians uh, uh, served for another 30 or 40 years when they were overrun by the Persians. And there was a king, there was a, a Persian king by the name of Xerxes who took by force a young teenager Jewish girl by the name of Esther. And you can read all about that in the book aptly named Esther. Uh, his son, Xerxes' son, is the name of Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes ruled after him. And he has a slave named Nehemiah, and you can read all about that in the book aptly named Nehemiah, which is where we are this morning. So uh, we're about 50 or 60 years into the captivity of the Jewish people. The year is about 530 B.C. or so, and um, we find our story here uh, entitled the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the last book of the Old Testament, chronologically speaking. So the events of Nehemiah, after the events of Nehemiah, you have about a 400-year period, that's a long period, where there is silence from God, and the next thing you know, Jesus comes on the scene. The other thing that makes this book rather unique is that it's the only book in the Old Testament written in the first person. So when you see the word I, it's actually the writer, it's actually Nehemiah who's actually talking to us. We know very little about Nehemiah. We know that his father's name was Hakaliah. We don't know who that was. We know he had a brother named Hanani. Uh, and that's about all we know. We know a couple of other biographical details, which we'll get to in just a moment, but the story goes something like this. Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, was able to travel back to Jerusalem after decades of being away to see what the city has looked like after the Babylonians destroyed it, and he comes back to Babylon, now Persia, and he says to his brother Nehemiah, the slave in the king's palace, you're not going to believe what I've seen. It's terrible. And the conversation may have gone something like, well, tell me at least Mrs. Goldstein's deli still on the corner. No, it's gone too. Wow. Everything's gone. And Nehemiah is very upset about this, that there's absolutely nothing left. And we pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. I hope you have your Bibles. I know you might say, Pastor Ward here at Avalon Church, we put the words on the screen. I get that. Bring your Bibles. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had served who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah hears the condition of the city, and he weeps over it. He prays. There's eloquent prayers throughout the entire book. I commend them to you. The rest of chapter 1 from here on out is a wonderful prayer that he prays. And chapter 1 ends with the phrase, now I was a cupbearer to the king. Our third biographical detail about this man, Nehemiah, a cupbearer to the king. We know that slaves in the king palaces uh, were always eunuchs. 
eunuch is a man who has forcibly, he was a eunuch. <clears throat> a cupbearer is a great job for an adventurous foodie. You got to take, taste the best that the land had to offer, and any moment you might be poisoned. So the idea was, is you taste the king's food before the king tastes it, so in case there was poison in the food, the king wouldn't die, you would. That's his job. In fact, I think we have a picture of some wonderful plates. If you're in London, in the British Museum, these are on permanent display. These two platters were discovered in about 1932 in an excavation, uh, and they have inscribed on them that these were platters, food-serving platters that were from the palace of Artaxerxes. Is it possible that Nehemiah held these platters? It absolutely is. Very narrow window of time, uh, and these have been discovered. Those look like uh, they would hold deviled eggs or something. I don't know what, <laughs> what they are, but, but, but they're food platters of some sort, which Nehemiah may have actually held. You can see them there uh, to this day. And so this eunuch slave who is a cupbearer, you know, it reminds you, y'all ever see the movie The Princess Bride? Anybody? It reminds me of that line, uh, good night, Wesley, sleep well, I'll most likely kill you in the morning. It's that kind of job. Enjoy the T-bone, good luck. If you're here tomorrow, great. If not, sorry. So that's the kind of job that he had. And so the chapter 2 begins. Let me just read several verses in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad? Now, I just want you to try to put yourself in the scene here. You've got a, a king who's so fearful for his life that he can't have any, he, he won't eat any food, drink any wine until somebody had tasted it first because it might be poisoned, and the guy who's offering you the wine comes in looking a little funny. Something different about you, you're going to pause just a moment to go, what, you know, is something going on? What's up with you? And, and, and the king does that. Why is your face so sad? You're not sick, he says. I know what this is. He thinks this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. You would think that the cupbearer who comes into the king looking a little funny would be very much afraid when the king talks to you even. Right? And he, he was very much afraid indeed. And he says to the king, let the king live forever. You better say that right off the bat. Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city and place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And I stopped just a moment ago. How odd is this that the king would even grant a slave any requests at all? What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. There's some wisdom. Before you speak, you pray, right? And he says to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servants found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? That's a great question to have asked because that means the king's at least entertaining your request. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time, and I said to the king, now, <laughs> boss, I'm going to need some extended time off. You're a slave. You don't get any time off. 
I'm going to need some extended time off. Okay, how long are you going to need? Okay, and, and King, uh, I'm going to need you to pay for the trip. And when I get there, I'm going to need to rebuild uh, the walls, and I'm going to need you to pay for that. I'm going to need you to help me with all the documentation, the building permits, the letters of authorization. I'm going to need you to help me with all that. And then I'd like to build myself a house while I'm there, and I'm going to need you to pay for that too. What's the response going to be if you give this to a Hollywood producer, make this movie, he's going to say, this doesn't make any sense. You've got to rewrite this. No one's going to believe the king's going to say yes to this eunuch slave. And that's what we have in the remainder of this passage. If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass uh, uh, through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates, the fortress of the temple, and the wall of the city, and the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. How did he know the good hand of his God was upon him? It would make no sense otherwise. This is nonsensical that the king would grant the slave everything the slave asked for. Whatever you want. You want to leave for a long time? You want to go, yeah, I'll pay for it. You go. This makes no sense. So the only explanation, and this is the point of the whole sermon this morning, the only explanation for this making any sense at all is God's good hand was upon him. Now listen, uh, uh, um, We have this eunuch slave with no pedigree, no standing, no money. Here's lesson one for this morning. God takes great delight in using nobodies. This ought to encourage you, Pastor Jim. God takes great delight in using nobodies. It's what he does throughout Scripture. God doesn't call the equipped. The saying goes, he equips the called. Gideon was a farmer. David was a shepherd. Peter was a fisherman. Matthew essentially worked in the DMV. Tax collector. Nobody's. It's who God uses. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see there's a time marker in chapter 1, verse 1. It happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, in the month of Nisan in the 20th year. I did the math. That's four months. Four months from the time Nehemiah gets the report from his brother saying how bad the city is, four months from the time he begins to pray to the time when he asks the king. During that time, he prays. That's the rest of chapter 1. He prays and he plans. Here's lesson two. We can do more than pray, but not until we pray. I want to sit here just for a second. We can do more than pray, but not until we pray. First he prays, then he plans. Most of us lean more towards the planning than we do the praying. Easter's coming up. Pastor Jim might get up and say, we're going to have a two-hour planning meeting two weeks from Monday. You want to be involved because there's a lot to do. You come to the planning meeting on Monday, and we're going to talk about how we're going to accommodate all the crowds that will be here on Easter. We're going to open up the meeting with a three-minute prayer time. 
and spend the next 117 minutes planning. Really? But that's how we do things. It's not the way we should do things. Listen, if we, listen, if you get nothing else, get this. If we don't pray, God won't work. I'm not saying what you're planning won't work. I'm saying it won't be God who's working. And there is a huge difference. What's the difference? I'm going to show you. The walls of Jerusalem had been broken down a long time. In fact, the Bible tells us that the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down so long that there was grass growing on the walls. That, that takes a while. The people had become so used to the broken. Now listen, a lot of application in this. The people had become so used to the brokenness, it was clear the people living there had become so used to it that they didn't even see it anymore. They didn't even realize it was an issue. You can apply that spiritually to our neighborhoods, to us. But this guy who had not seen up until now the sorry state of affairs, he, he had not seen it until he went there to see it. It was debilitating to him. He couldn't believe it. It had gotten so far, like walking into uh, a hoarder's house and smelling the stench and wondering how anybody could ever, well, you get so used to it, you don't even see it. Nehemiah was burdened. Y'all understand that? But hey, listen, what's he going to do? He's a eunuch slave 900 miles away with no standing and no money. How, look, I tell you how the mind works. You know what? That is a shame. That's just terrible. You know what? I'm going to stop right now and pray that God might send somebody to go do that. Obviously, I can't do it. I mean, obviously. I'm just a eunuch slave 900 miles away. That's really my story. I've been with World Hope for 16 years doing ministry, helping people, helping people in this life, helping people into the next life. It's been a, a great job. I haven't made a lot of money. I don't have a great living, but I have a great life. It's great work. And you can go to places I've been all over the world and see the results of the work that we've done at World Hope, and you would be amazed at what God has done. This is my job. I have a family. I have a church home. I have a ministry. This is what I'm doing. I'm the Nehemiah, I think to myself. Then God says, here's a church. And I say, I don't want it. Not interested. I didn't say it once. I said it four times over a four-week period, because they kept calling. I want to say, will you quit calling? I got a full-time job. I'm away from my family enough. I don't, I'll keep my ear to the ground. I'll pray that God might send you somebody. Which I did pray that. There's a church in a building it's got 35, 40 people. All of them are in their 60s or above. They're dying. When I came and preached to them, I had the freedom to stand up and tell them, y'all are dying. I did. I, don't mean, I, don't, I didn't mean them personally, though that's true. I meant the church is dying. I just told them. They're, 
I had one family in their 30s. There were no families in their 40s. One family in their 50s. And the other five or six families above that. The roof's leaking. The bill, they're not in debt. That's a good thing. But they don't have any money. And they're in a community that is a, a, a thriving they're in a community where the average property value, I looked it up, is nearly half a million dollars. 3%, 3% of the people, if you took a, a three-mile circle and all around my church building, 3% of the people in that circle are living below the poverty line. 3%. Problem is, 80% of my people are living below the poverty line, and none of them live in that three-mile circle. None of them. Not one. So, yeah, okay, I, I get that, that I should be burdened for y'all, but it's not my problem. I got Kenya, Detroit. I'm, here's the thing. Stinking God made it my problem. <laughs> See? Nehemiah enlists the help of a ton of people. In fact, if you were to read chapter 7, all of chapter 7 is just a list of names, one after the other, which will mean nothing to you. As you go through, you try to find, is anybody else in this list somewhere else in the Bible? They're not. It's just a list of people who, who, who helped him with this idea of going and rebuilding the walls. They face a ton of opposition, literally, a threatening of their own life, so that when Nehemiah said, I want you to rebuild the wall, they had to have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. They had to stay up all night and watch. In fact, there's a great little verse in there that says uh, uh, that the whole time they were building, which we'll see in just a minute, was well over a month, uh, they didn't even have time to bathe. They were in a hurry to get the thing done, to get the wall built, to protect them from the oncoming enemies. Great opposition, and they did it. And we end our story this morning in chapter 6, because we are running out of time quickly. If you'll just turn to chapter 6, or it'll be on the screen, verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul. Now listen, in 52 days. Y'all understand 52 days? This eunuch slave who lives 900 miles away with nothing to his name has marched for three months. He gets there. He takes one dike to rest. The Bible says he did nothing the first day. You'd think after three months of traveling, you would be entitled to a day off, and he took it. And the next day, he got up and began to plan and began to build to recruit his team. And in 52 days, the wall is done around the entire city. I think we have a picture of the wall for you to see because you can go to Jerusalem today and see this wall. That's Nehemiah's wall. It's actually King Hezekiah's wall. He was the one that originally built it 120-some-odd years before Nehemiah, but it had fallen down, and Nehemiah came and rebuilt that wall. And there's a section of it there. You can see, I think you can see in the upper left-hand corner, there's a school playground. It's just right there in the middle of the city. That's the wall. 2,500 years old. That's what's left of it. It's still there. That's pretty good for 2,500. We don't have anything. In, we don't, this country's not, what, 
Okay, y'all get the idea? Old. He comes and rebuilds the wall in 52 days. Now, how did he do that? Look at verse 16. Nehemiah 6, 16. When all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, fell greatly in their own esteem. Why? For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Now, that's a simple sermon. That's a simple message. There's no way in the world you're going to be able to do this unless God comes and does it. They could not figure out how in the world people did this. Well, here's how they did it. They spent more time praying than they did planning. They planned, but they prayed. And when you do that, if you spend all this time planning and what you plan comes off well, people will go, wow, they did a great job planning. But if you spend all this time praying and less time, I'm not telling you not to plan because he clearly planned. You can read that in chapter 1. He knew how much it would cost. He knew how long it would take. He knew what the paperwork he needed because he asked the king for all that. In that four-month period from when he hears to the time he asks the king, he spends all this time praying, that's the rest of chapter 1, and planning. But if you spend all your time planning and three minutes at the beginning praying, people were going to lay your success at how well you planned. <coughs> but God forgot, listen, every single time in the Bible, without exception, I challenge you to find one, when God shows up and does His thing, it's without explanation. What do you mean the jail just opened and Peter walked out? What did they do? They had a prayer meeting. What do you mean the ocean parted? Oceans don't part, people. They don't. What do you mean? They're all dead. How, how can 300 people kill 350,000 Midianites? That's not possible. Right, because God showed up. And what I'm trying to, to get, get in our head is that when God shows up, it's going to be different than when we do it. But we don't really like letting Him do it. We want to do it ourselves. There's a difference. If you come to my church today, Pastor Dale's there today, he's going to see his building, he's going to see my people, and he's going to come back, you know what, you need God big time. You need God. Yeah, right. That's, that's the point. I can't build that church any more than a nine... Than, than, than a, than a slave, a eunuch slave 900 miles away can build a wall. Can't be done. Doesn't make any sense. How are you, Nehemiah, what are you, you think the king's going to let you off? You're a slave. You don't, really? Where are you going to get the money to do this? You have any idea how much it takes to build a city? Come on. How are you going to get there? Who are you going to get to help you? Come on. You, listen, you're pie in the sky. I appreciate you wanting to serve God, but really, come on, Nehemiah. Really. Don't you know? His, his brother may have said that to him. I've seen you, you haven't seen it. 
I've seen it, Nehemiah. Really. Just pray. Just pray. You don't, you don't, you don't really think you're going to have to do it. Well, God's got to do it. Nehemiah couldn't do it. God had to do it. I read this song the other day I used to listen to when I was a kid. Nobody stood and applauded them, so they knew from the start this road would not lead to fame. All they really knew for sure was Jesus had called them. He said, come follow me, and they came. With reckless abandon, they came. Empty nets lying there at the water's edge told a story that few could believe and none could explain how some crazy fishermen agreed to go where Jesus led with no thought for what they could gain. For Jesus had called them by name, and they answered, we will abandon it all. Why? For the sake of the call. No other reason at all but the sake of the call. Holy devoted, holy devoted to live and to die for the sake of the call. Hudson Taylor said it best when he said, attempt something so great for God that it's doomed for failure unless God be in it. And I have to stop and ask myself that question, Ward, have, have you ever done that? Have you ever done anything? Listen, uh, 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 church staffs all over the country, I want to ask this question too. People in full-time ministry, I want to ask this question too. You work for crew, you work for any missions organization, you work for churches, people who've been in churches your whole life, I mean your whole life, you grew up in it. I want to ask the question, have you ever done any, have you ever tried anything so great that unless God comes along and does it, you're not going to get it done? That's a challenging question because you know what we want to do? Well, let me sit down and see, see, see what my budget will allow. Let me sit down and figure out how much time I have. Yeah, do all that, but then do it. Attempt it. Let God come along and say, let me, let me show you what I can do when I show up because I can make lions' mouths not eat you. That's what I can do. I can put you in a fiery furnace that's so hot, the people that throw you in the furnace die because it's so hot. And I can have you come out of the barbecue not even smelling like smoke, the Bible says. That's what I can do. Because when I show up, that's what I do. And I do that so that everybody involved can look at you and say, what? He did what? They did what? How can that be? I said to my folks the other night when we had a, uh, we had a business meeting, and I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to close down the church. We're going to close it down. This is last Wednesday night. I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to close down the church. We're just going to close it down. We're going to shut the doors for uh, uh, five minutes, and then we're going to open it back up. We're going to have a new name. We're going to have a new mission. We're going to have a new vision. We're going to have a new everything. We're going to start over. This, that, that building that's fallen down in this upper-class neighborhood has been there for 25 years. It was a temporary building that was donated by Lockheed Martin they had, a, they had these, you know, temporary buildings. We had two of them. That was, 
It was put there until they could build up enough or they could build their own building. It's still there, right? Uh, 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 pastor, they, they, they said to me eight weeks ago, ten weeks ago, we got to put a new roof on the building. The water's coming in the children's area. It's structurally damaged. The beams are rotten. We're afraid it's going to fall in on the kids. Well, you can't let that wait. All right, call the roofers. We got to get quotes, da 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 later, I'm getting a roof put on tomorrow. Well, you put a lot of money into that building. I I don't have a choice. Every day, I'm reminded, Ward, you can't do this. This is not, it's certainly not happening in 52 days. So I have to go back and say, God, are you sure? I mean, Can't these people just assimilate into some other? Now, listen, we've grown 50% in the year and a half I've been there. We've grown from 40 to 60. We grow 50% next year, we'll be doing pretty good, right? Almost breaking 100 right up there close to us. Look, I don't know what I'm doing. Y'all understand that? I'm... this is my first pastorate. I've never pastored a church ever. In my, I'm 46 years old. I've never pastored a church. I've preached my whole life. I've never pastored a church. I don't know what I'm doing. I think God says, right. You don't know what you're doing any more than a eunuch slave who was a cupbearer decides to be a city planner. Go plan a city. He's got to do better than that Yahoo who planned the parking lot at Waterford Lakes Town Center. Right? I'm just saying. Look. I, you know what? I, 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 I don't think it's anything more than a decision. I don't think it's anything more than a decision to say, um, I guess what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask God to give me something to do that doesn't make any sense. Eight weeks after we started going to Lake Mary, every week for eight weeks, every single week for eight weeks, we got in the car, my eight-year-old and my five-year-old said to me, every single week for eight weeks, Daddy, we want to go back to Avalon because we, we don't have a children's program where we are. I get that, Right? They finally stopped asking, but I think to myself, okay, I'm going to get in the car, and I'm going to drive 40 minutes each way on a toll road. It's going to cost me seven bucks round trip to get up there and back on the 417. It honestly doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I just think it was a decision to say, you know what, God, I'm going to do what you called me to do. And uh, as inconvenient as it might be, and as expensive as it might be, and whatever else it might be, I, for those people who make the decision, I'm going to choose to follow the Lord. You know, follow is an action word, right? I think I, think I say this every time you've heard me preach. Follow is an action word. If I said to you, will you follow me out the building, and you say, yeah, and I go out the building, and you don't go, you're not following. You can say you're a follower of Jesus, but I want to know, are you doing anything? I don't know. Following Jesus has to be more than coming to church on Sunday, doesn't it? He's the master. 
He's the boss. He says, go, you go. You leave your nets. That's my livelihood, Lord. Yeah, I know. Follow. For those of us that do that, something happens. Let me tell you what happens. For those of us that follow, and I'm not, I really shouldn't include me in it, for people who follow like that, something happens. God shows up and does something completely out of left field that you never saw coming, that the only explanation is God, which is why God works, to bring glory to himself. Not to the pastor, not to the staff, not to us as individuals, not so we can get up and get a hand clap or an applause or a pat on the back, not so we can get some wonderful introduction. No. Let's point towards Jesus because he's the one who's the maker of it all. And he's the one who gave me life and who gave me eternal life. And he did so for one reason. And let me tell you why you exist, why God made you. Let me tell you why God made you. He made you to make him famous. That's why. And when we do something that makes no sense, that's the Bible word, faith. If it makes sense, it's not faith. The evidence of things not seen. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. But when we exercise faith and when we begin to please God, something happens. God shows up. Don't you want to see God show up? Do you want to keep hearing stories about where God showed up in other parts of the world and in other churches doing other things? That guy was healed. Everybody saw God came and healed. How did that happen? God showed up. How in the world did they do that? God came. They had this big event and all these people. Yeah, God shows up. When we pray, give him the glory for all that he's going to do because that's why he made us. He made us to make him famous. Everybody stand to your feet, please, and I'll pray. Then you. Lord Jesus, I, I, I do love you, and I, I, uh, I stand in front of these people talking out loud so they hear my words, but they don't know my heart. They don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. They don't know my motivation. They, they don't know anything of what's inside, but you do, and you hear my words this very second. You hear my words. You know my heart, and you know, Lord, that my heart has a tendency to wander. You know my heart has a tendency to be deceitful. You know my heart has a tendency to do things with ulterior motives. So cleanse my heart. Make my heart pure. Don't let me do anything that's self-gratifying, that's self-glorifying. Make me do everything that gives the glory, shines the spotlight on you, for you alone are God. You alone are God. And as we, the people of God, have gathered in this place, in Avalon Park, in Avalon Church right now, maybe you're working in the hearts of people to say, I'm going to step out by faith. 
I'm going to do something that God's calling me to do that makes no sense, and I'm going to wait on God to show up and do something big. That's what I'm going to do. And I pray for those people who will do that, that they would sense your hand of encouragement, of comfort, of confidence, that they would give themselves wholly to you. (coughs) Wholly to you for one reason only, for the sake of the call. Because you called us by name. You have called us by name. You've given us works to do that you created for us to do before the foundation of the world, and now we're living our life at such a time to do those works. Pastor, you don't understand. Lord, you don't understand. I'm in debt. You don't understand. I've got the health thing facing me. I can't do anything but what's right in front of me, Lord. My marriage is in trouble. My home's in trouble. My business is in trouble. I'm in trouble. I have to do this first, then I'll worry about that later. Can't afford to give, Lord. Can't afford to serve right now, maybe later. Can I tell you, God wants to get us out of that and say, watch what I do when you exercise faith. Watch what I do in your home. Watch what I do in your church. Watch what I do when you begin to pray. Spend time in prayer. Get on your knees alone when no one can see you. Cry out, God, move me. God, use me for your sake and for your glory. Grow your church here in Avalon Park. Grow your church, Lake Mary Heathrow. Grow your church everywhere around the world so that people uh, can come to know you more and more and we can hasten the return of Jesus to where your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for providing for us our daily bread. Thank you for giving us life eternal. Thank you for it all. May we in gratitude serve you. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name I pray.